Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to that text. Hebrews, chapter 2, I'm uh, beginning with verse 10 and reading through verse 18, the end of this chapter. This is, uh, well, this is a Christmas story this text. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. The Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, that's the end of another year. And so there's a new year. Do you make New Year's resolutions? Now, I could... I could preach this any time of year and just ask you if you make resolutions. Most of us make resolutions. Now, we don't call them that. You know, there was a famous American uh, late Puritan uh, theologian, pastor, genius, scientist guy. His name was Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards was famous for his resolutions. He wrote hundreds of them. One example of a resolution of his was to think often of dying. (laughs) That's a strange thing to resolve, isn't it? He said, you know, I don't think about the fact that I'm going to die enough. Now, Jonathan Edwards was a wise man because the Bible tells all of us that you don't think about the fact that you're going to die enough. 
the book of Ecclesiastes says you should be thinking about whether you're going to die all the time. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes says it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. Why? Because it will remind you that you're going to die one day. Well, we're not going to get into that, but that's, a that's an example of a resolution. It wasn't a New Year's resolution. It was just a resolution Jonathan Edwards made. I don't really make New Year's resolutions. A lot of people do, though. I guess the beginning of a new year seems like a good time to sort of take stock, make some commitments to self-improvement. Now, that's a resolution. You commit to something, that's a resolution. So we're always making commitments. You know, I've got to do better at this. I recently, not on New Year's, but, you know, sometime, I can't remember when exactly, decided that I needed to get out of bed at 5.30 every morning. I shouldn't have told you that, but I did decide that that was what I wanted to do, and I committed to it. And I think it's been several months, I'm still working on it. And slowly, the time I get out of bed is getting earlier and earlier. For me, the hardest part of this resolution is to get out of bed at 5.30, you have to get in bed at 9.30. And that is hard for me to do. Well, anyway, as I mentioned, I don't make a lot of New Year's resolutions. I think it's easier to claim self-improvement if I don't define it so clearly at the beginning. And you know, New Year's resolutions are famous for not working. There was one guy, he got around that. He said, this was his resolution, my New Year's resolution is to help all my friends gain 10 pounds so I look skinnier. I like that one. I asked someone else what his resolution for this year was. He said, I don't know, my wife hasn't told me yet. That concludes the stand-up portion of today's sermon. What if we were making New Year's resolutions for the church? What are the things that make a good church? If you were making resolutions for the church, what would be at the top of your list? Really, what would you resolve for us as a church? I can think of a few things. There's a lot of bad theology in churches these days, or weak theology. You and you'll even hear people say that theology is not that important as long as people love Jesus. We need a resolution. Teach people to recognize that the quality of our love for Jesus is directly related to the quality of our theology about Jesus. Sound devotion is built on sound doctrine. Many people are very devoted to a Jesus that does not even really exist. And I would suggest to you that if you're in love with Jesus, a Jesus that didn't die for your sins and whom it provided redemption for you, reconciliation to God by his death and resurrection and ascension and intercession on your behalf, 
If you believe in some Jesus that's only just like a good moral example, well, that matters. And your love for that Jesus is probably really only a love for yourself, which really doesn't do you any good. Wow, I said more than about that than I wanted to. Another problem in the church is a sort of overreaching pragmatism. We define success by the number of people that are attracted to a given church or how satisfied they are with that church's particular array of services. We need a resolution. We need to be practical in our ministry strategies, but more importantly, we need to be biblical. These days, also, our, our Christianity is very individualized. Here's a resolution. Get Christians to think about how they contribute to the character of the church at least as much as they think about how the church contributes to their character. We talk about this a lot, right? It's not about who each of us is. It's about who we are. I could go on and on, develop a long list of corrective measures for the church. Lots of books are published every year that do exactly that. And of course, many books are also published every year that perpetuate all the problems. Anyway, if you were writing a set of New Year's resolutions for this church, what would be at the top of your list? What would be the first thing? Now, I think International Church is a pretty good church, and probably you do too. I mean, you're here. But I doubt that any of us would want to claim that we're perfect, and most of us would probably come up with one or two resolutions. What would be at the top of your list? Now, it wouldn't surprise anyone here to find out that the Bible has a lot to say about what a good church is and does what a good Christian is and does. One of the books that is primarily aimed at how to have a good local church is the book of 1 Timothy, and that's where we're going today. When Paul wrote this letter, he had uh, recently assigned Timothy to deal with problems, some problems at this church. This is the church in Ephesus. This is the same church the letter to the Ephesians was written. He wrote to give Timothy uh, some particular instructions. And the letter, 1 Timothy, ends up being sort of like a list of New Year's resolutions for the church. Things they needed to do to become a good church. Of course, if these are things you need to become a good church, these are things a good church needs. Now, these, this church had some problems that we see as we read this letter. There was some false teaching that had been sort of sneaking into the church, a mixture of some kind of Judaizing legalism and Gnostic elitism, spiritualism, Maybe a little prosperity doctrine thrown in. You can see some hints of that. 
There's some indication that maybe some of their elders were known to be involved in some sin or another. And uh, so one of the results of all that was the church had developed this taste for pointless philosophizing. That's specifically mentioned in the text. Not all philosophizing is pointless, by the way. They were into theological debate. They were into doctrine for doctrine's sake. In, in other words, church, for many people in this church, had become sort of an academic exercise. Now, I've been an academic. I like academic exercise. I like theological and philosophical debate. But the point of the church is not to be interesting. Should I say that again? The point of the church is not to be interesting. And please don't take that as some sort of excuse from me about why I'm not so interesting. But the, the point of the church is the announcement, the elaboration of, the celebration of, the, our faith together in, and our pronouncement of and declaration of the good news of God's grace to us in Christ. That's the point of the church. Now, personally, I find that fascinating, but my goal isn't to be interesting. It's to be true. Anyway, so these guys were getting into, you know, a lot of pointless philosophical and theological debate. So they lost their desire to pursue personal godliness. You know, the power of obedience is in a focus on Christ. We say that all the time. The power to be obedient to the commandments of Christ flows from the love of Christ. The experience of his love for us and our faith in that that leads us to love him and in loving him, obey him. So they kind of lost track of that. So this damaged their reputation and their testimony in the community. We see hints of this in the text. The men of this church had apparently abdicated leadership in the church and the teaching roles. And then certain widows, it says in the letter, <laughs> were taking undue advantage of the church's charity. Paul actually exhorts them to get off the charity list of the church because they don't need it. Because they were, <laughs> he says this, they got themselves on the charity list and then they used that as an opportunity to uh, spend their time nosing around in everyone else's business. Now, if you were advising that church, if you were going to give them a series of resolutions designed to make them a good church, what would be at the top of your list? They had a problem of false teaching. They had elders involved in sin, and it was known. They, had, they were wrapped up in pointless philosophical arguments. They weren't really loving each other, and so they weren't really demonstrating the gospel in the community, and they, uh, the 
they lost track of who is qualified leader. They had people taking advantage of the charitable program of the church. What would you say to them as a resolution? The body of Christ in Ephesus was kind of sick. First Timothy is Paul's diagnosis and prescription. Now, in the process of helping them, he offers counsel that will help any church. We don't have time to review the whole list that's in the book of 1 Timothy, so we're going to look at the first thing on the list. And the first thing on the list, this text in 1 Timothy starts with this phrase, first of all. First of all. Now this expression, first of all, in this language, the Greek language the New Testament is written in, is not just like the number one on a numbered list. It means first of all, the highest priority. That's what it means. So this is what we're going to look at. Now I find what Paul tells this church, first of all, a little bit of a surprise. It's not what I would have said given them a knowledge of their situation. So first we're going to take a look at what Paul says is first of all, the job number one in this church and really in any church. And then we'll take a little bit of, talk a little bit about why that is the number one item and why it's really more important than anything else that might be suggested. And then we'll see that this top priority should be our top priority. When we're done, I hope that all of us will be resolved to adopt this as our number one job also. So we'll be answering three questions. What's job number one? Why is that job number one? And should that be our job number one? So, let's look at it. Here's the text. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there, <clears throat> excuse me, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So what's job number one? First of all, I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made. That's it. Job number one is pray, 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 pray. Paul uses four different words for prayer. His point's not so much to distinguish all the different ways to pray. 
His point is, pray in every different way. All ways you can think of to pray, pray. Entreaties emphasizes needs we bring to God in prayer. Prayer emphasizes that it's God that we bring our needs to. Petitions emphasizes our relative rank before God. In other words, you, you're begging. He's the one with authority, and he's in a position to grant or to deny our request. The last word is thanksgiving, emphasizing the need for gratitude in our prayers. So Paul says the most important thing you can do is bring your needs, bring your needs to God, recognize he's in a position to help, remember that every good thing you have is a gift from the very same God. Bring your needs, recognize he's in a position to help, remember that every good thing you have is a gift from him. But again, Paul's use of these words is not really about the special nuances of each word. The point is to give a lesson, is not to give a lesson on the intricacies of prayer. The point is, get people praying. Job one is pray, 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 pray. Now, I can hear you saying, that's not really a surprise. We all know we should pray about important problems in the church before we go to work on them. We all know that we depend on God for the health of the church. So, okay, I admit it, this isn't the most surprising part. But think about this. A few minutes ago, I asked, was asking you what would be at the top of your list if you were dealing with a church with encroaching false teaching, ineffective leaders, taste for pointless philosophizing, failing discipleship, damaged testimony, failure of male leadership, abuse of charity. When I asked what would be on your list, were you thinking, pray, 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 pray? I hope so, but I didn't. And it's in that sense that I find this surprising. It's not study the problem, it's pray. It's not throw the bums out, it's pray. It's not develop a teaching series to address the false doctrine, it's pray. Now you might do all of those other things, but the first thing is to pray. Now, even though I wasn't thinking of it, I'm not really surprised by it. I go, oh yeah, right, (laughs) pray. Assume, one would assume that prayer comes first. Yeah, we would assume that, but would it be a good assumption? If we judged according to actual practice, where would we find prayer in your priority list? Where would we find it in our collective priority list? Is it first or last? (laughs) Is it, well, I'll try this, I'll try this, I'll try this. Oh, God, help me. Or is it, God, help me at the beginning? I'm afraid we often suffer from anemia of prayerlessness. Maybe we're not as healthy as we think we are. If we don't pray, it means we don't see ourselves a certain way. If I don't pray, it means I don't see myself as needy before God. 
or I don't see God as provider. If I have a need and I know he's the provider of my needs, I talk to him about it. If I don't have any needs, I don't need to talk to anybody. And if I have some needs and I think someone else is the provider for that, then I go talk to that person. Not praying is a symptom of the spiritual disease of self-sufficiency. I'll handle it. And then if I can't handle it, I'll talk to God. God, I think, is often leading us into places where we can't handle it just so we'll talk to him. Anyway, job one is pray. But that's not really the most surprising thing in Paul's exhortation. The most surprising part is the who and the what of the prayer. Suppose we had this problem. We had a problem of false teaching. We had an elder who was needed church discipline, or we had a, a bunch of busybody widows, or we had all these other problems, but we knew the thing we should do is pray. How would we pray? Well, here's what's interesting. If I were inviting people to pray as a remedy for a sick church, I'd ask them to pray for a remedy. I would say, pray that the Lord would provide you with true doctrine in place of false. Pray for your leaders to be effective. Pray that the Lord would give you a taste for real theology over pointless philosophizing. Pray for an exercise of true godliness. It would result in a restored testimony. Pray for yourselves. You need it. If it were me, that's the sort of praying I would recommend, but that's not what Paul says. Who is the who and what is the what of prayer of the prayer Paul urges? Well, here it is. First of all, then, I urge you that entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Who does Paul want them to pray for? Everyone who's not here. This prayer is directed out of the church. All men. Now, this, this uh, text says <laughs> four kings. The, the, the grammar in the Greek sentence here could be interpreted like this, even for kings. Because the last person Ephesians in this church would want to pray for is the Roman emperor who crucified Christ and persecutes them. Paul says, even them. Pray for them. Pray for everyone, even kings. And then he says, for all who are in authority so that you may lead a tranquil and quiet life. Now, a lot of people interpret this to mean 
uh, pray for those in authority so that they'll leave you alone. That's not what it means. We'll come back to that. The answer to our first question, what is job one? Is pray. Pray for what? Pray for everyone. Pray for the world, all men, even kings. Pray what for them? That they would be saved. This is like an evangelism prayer. Now, we all know we should be praying for lost people to be saved. That's not a surprise, but it is surprised. It is surprising that it is presented as the pattern for a healthy church or for correcting a church that has all these other problems. First, pray for people to be saved. Before you do anything else, pray for that. Don't pray for your problems. Pray for their problems. Now, as I mentioned, this says so that you can live a tranquil and quiet life. This isn't so that the king or the, those in authority will leave you alone. It is uh, actually a reflection of this. It literally says so that you will be good citizens. That you will not be stirring up trouble that the king has to pay attention to. You know, when you're praying for the king to be saved... your attitude to the king changes. You don't need to make trouble for the king. You're a quiet, peaceable citizen. You're a a good citizen. They were fighting with one another for the resources of the church. That's what's happening in the church. One of the results was they didn't have a good reputation in society. They were quarrelsome. They were troublesome. And these other two words, in all godliness and dignity, are even more specific. To be godly is to have reverence for holy things that is apparent to everyone. To give God his due honor, to be a worshipful person, to live with dignity, to be honorable, to have an exemplary reputation, to be a model citizen. If we all behaved as good Christians, we would be the best citizens. And that's what Paul's saying here. And he's, but how does he get there? He doesn't say, be a good citizen. How strange. He doesn't say, hey, you should straighten up your act. He says, no, you should pray for everyone that they would be saved. And The consequence of that is your act will straighten up. You know, we have this old expression, prayer changes things. We believe in that. We believe God is responsive to our prayers. The prayer changes things. But you know what? The main thing it changes is the heart of the person praying. As soon as you come to prayer, you are Behaving as a Christian, you are relying on the provision of God's grace. You have repented every time you pray. 
Every time you look to God to be the provider of anything you need, you have turned in faith to the one true and living God, and your standing for that is only in the righteousness of Christ. So you are absolutely behaving as a Christian any time you begin to pray. So that's the first reason this is the top priority, so that we will be transformed by focusing on the gospel and looking for God's provision. The second answer to this question, why is praying for the salvation of lost people the number one job, is this. It's good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, come to a knowledge of the truth. When we say something is good to God, we, mind that, we mean that he finds it suited to his values and purposes. When we say something is acceptable to God, we mean it pleases him. In other words, God likes this sort of praying. I am not praying for my financial security, for my success in my job, for my the health, for my health, for my family's health. I'm praying for the salvation of the lost. God is pleased by that prayer. Now, I'm not telling you to stop praying for whatever. As soon as you pray, you're doing the Christian thing in every circumstance. But there's a priority here, praying for the lost. Why? Well, it says here, God himself desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the second reason that praying for lost people is the cure for an unhealthy church. Or the vitamin pill for the healthy church. When we pray for lost people, we are tuning our desires to God's desires. God has a heart for the heart of an evangelist. And when we pray for lost people, God is developing that same heart in us, in and through our praying. We're conformed to the image of God. We find a deeper, truer fellowship with God when we pray for people who need the salvation that God has provided in Christ. The main reason this is job number one is this returns the church to gospel-hearted. And that is the heartbeat of all healthy churches. He goes on, third answer to our question, why is in verses 5 and 6, there's one God, one mediator, also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. That is the gospel. In Paul's days, religion was pluralistic and parochial, just like ours. Every town or region had a little different set of gods to worship. 
No matter who you are or where you are, there's only one God and there's only one way to be reconciled to God. This is why we pray for everyone, because God is everyone's God. Jesus is not the only the mediator. I'm sorry. Jesus is the only mediator for everyone. There is not this path and that path. There's only the one path. And it is Christ. God announces his gospel to everyone, his testimony given at the proper time. This is why Paul says he was appointed a preacher, an apostle to the Gentiles. We need to think for a moment about the word Gentiles. The word is ethnos. It it means nations. This Gentile in this context means everyone who's not a Jew. In other words, all the other people. It is because God is by nature a saving God that he appointed Paul to take the good news of Christ beyond the boundaries of his first chosen people to the nations. To fulfill the promise he made to Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul wants to restore the gospel heart. Now, we are always going every every week. This bulletin says right on the front, Bible-based, gospel-centered. Painted on the front of the building, it says gospel-centered. The focus of our word here is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that God has provided for us sinners, reconciling us to fellowship with him by the blood of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the intercession of Christ, the looked-for coming of Christ. We are gospel people here. And we preach it. But here is the key. Here is the key if we really want to live by that little slogan, gospel-centered. This is the key. Pray for people who need Christ. I can tell you to be gospel-centered. I can teach you the details of the gospel. Every Sunday we can come in here and celebrate the gospel. And what really will make all that take root in your heart is if you pray for someone who needs Christ. So Paul says, first, first, pray, pray. Pray, pray for everyone, even kings, even people who abuse you, maybe especially for people who abuse you. Pray. The gospel is the cure for all church problems. And the very heart of the gospel is we 
look to God in Christ and by the Spirit. That's prayer. Now, this isn't the only thing on Paul's list of resolutions for the church. It is, first of all, it's the main thing. It's the thing from which everything else flows. If a, God, if a church is gospel-hearted, they will not be inclined to entertain false teaching because false teaching is about something else. There's a lot of false teaching in the world today that says, look, if you invest in God, he'll pay. So if you give a lot of money, typically to me, if you give a lot of money to me, God will give a lot of money to you. What did Jesus die for? There's false teaching in the church today that says, look, if you believe hard enough, you'll be healed from any sickness, anytime, in any place. And yet the people who preach this die right on time. And it's off the point. Christ, Christ, and him crucified, that is what we preach. And when we pray for people who need to hear that, we hear it again. We preach it to ourselves again. We believe in it again. And we believe in it deeper, harder, more thoroughly. <laughs> and that is the point. That's the gospel heart of the church. Pray for everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. This is the first and foremost resolution. Pray, 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 pray. So we've answered two questions. What's the number one job in becoming a healthy church? That's pray for the salvation of lost people. Why is that job number one? The answer is because it tunes our hearts to the, God, to the gospel, to our gospel-hearted God, and he's the source of all health in the church. So I hope by now the answer to our third question is obvious. Should that be our number one job? Uh-huh. Yeah. I find, though, that this is hard. How is this our number one job? Sometimes we respond to this by saying, well, let's set up some programs, some praying requirements, some to-do lists, some prayer meetings, some blah, you know, go on and on. So we do, but something typically goes wrong here. Like you set up, we have a prayer meeting and no one shows up. That happens a lot. It's happened here recently. I find I'm resistant to praying because I'm resistant to relying on someone other than myself. And this is the condition we need to address in each of us all the time. The scripture says, pray without ceasing. How's it going? I think I could say, I could ask you the question, pray without ceasing, 
And I could ask, when was the last time you prayed? And you might have a hard time remembering. I, I don't experience brief interruptions in my prayer. Maybe you're not the same way. Maybe you pray all the time, but I'm confessing now. I don't experience brief interruptions in my prayer. I experience brief moments of prayer, interrupting whatever else I've got going on. Why is it so hard to prioritize? Well, because we're stubborn in our self-reliance. We'd really much rather rely on anything other than God. So, all I can say to you is, will you join me in repenting as much as we can whenever we think to? Praying that the Spirit will remind us to pray and to pray for lost people. I also notice this about my prayer. It tends to be entirely about me. Do you pray like me? I mean, really, like I have a sore hand or blah, blah, blah. Or I'm worried about this or that and how it, it's all about me. And I program myself, I pray, you know, we have this thing on the bulletin, pray, you know. Every now and then I remember to do that. Well, I think the key here is change the subject of our prayers. I really do think this is the key. I can say, you know, it's important to pray, and everyone's going to go, yeah, right, hallelujah, brother, of course it is. It's important to pray. I really should pray more. I'm determined. I'm making myself a resolution. I am going to pray for 10 minutes every morning. So we write some laws, and we find them burdensome, and we don't keep them. I'm, I want to argue, I guess, to me and to you this morning, the key here is, what is it you're praying for? So, I'm going to propose an experiment to you. I'd like you to think of three names. Three names of people you know that don't know Christ. And here's what I'd like you to do. I would like you to pick the most desperate cases. In other words, I'd like you to choose three names of people you know who don't know Christ, who you think cannot know Christ. That you think are beyond reach. Now, I know officially you don't think anyone is, but you know what I'm talking about. There's people in your life you will not share the gospel with because you don't see the point of doing it. 
Now, these people don't have to be close to you. They don't have to even be people you have regular contact with, but somebody you know who really needs to know Christ. And here's what I'd like us to do, a little resolution. I am not going to ask you to go share the gospel with that person. In fact, I'm going to ask you not to. I want you to do one thing and one thing only. Pray for their salvation. Pray for God to share the gospel with them. You're not his only chance. Pray for God to share the gospel with them. Pray for God's spirit to work in their heart to see the truth of it and believe in it. Pray for their salvation. That's it. Now here's the thing. If you're praying for their salvation and God asks you to go talk to them about it, you know, he's over me. So just because I said don't do that, uh, go ahead. But the, the point is pray. Pray, pray, pray. We say this all the time. Prayer is the Christian life. And I'm disturbed by how much of my life is not very Christian on the basis of that statement. Prayer is the Christian life. So I want to encourage you right now, think of them. Write them down. Three names. You know some people who don't know Christ. And let's pray for them and see what happens. You think God can save them? Let's ask him. I also want to see what happens to us when we start praying this way. Oh, it's okay with me also if you ask each other who's on your list. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the encouragement of the gospel. Lord, thank you that you are the one that works all these things. That We don't really need to get too worked up about it. Lord, help us to... Uh, Seek you in everything, all the time. Because you have promised to provide for us. You have opened the door so that we can pray. Lord, teach us not to be so self-sufficient. To learn to trust you, whatever the need. Father, I pray for the gospel heart of this church. I thank you for it. It's so evident in so many ways. Father, I pray that in our prayer, we would grow in grace. We would understand more deeply how good you've been to us, the joy that you have shared into our hearts, the love that you have poured out in us so that we might be a light to the world around us. Father, I pray for our prayer life. Lord, we beg you that the Spirit of God would move us to be a praying congregation, and especially to pray 
for the advancement of the gospel in people we know. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.